Good morning. Luke chapter 10. And we'll continue in our study of the book of Luke. We're going to look at the uh, GCT this morning. Luke chapter 10, verse 25, and behold, a certain lawyer stood up and tested him, saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? He said to him, What is written in the law? What is your reading of it? So he answered and said, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, and with all your mind, and your neighbor as yourself. And he said to him, You have answered rightly. Do this, and you will live. But he, wanting to justify himself, said to Jesus, And who is my neighbor? Then Jesus answered and said, A certain man went down from Jerusalem to Jericho and fell among thieves, who stripped him of his clothing, wounded him, and departed, leaving him half dead. Now by chance, a certain priest came down that road, and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. Likewise, a Levite, when he arrived at the place, came and looked and passed by on the other side. But a certain Samaritan, as he journeyed, came where he was. And when he saw him, he had compassion. So he went to him and bandaged his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. And he set him on his own animal, brought him to an inn, and took care of him. On the next day, when he departed, he took out two denarii, gave them to the innkeeper, and said to him, Take care of him. And whatever more you spend, when I come again, I will repay you. So, which of these three do you think was neighbor to him who fell among the thieves? And he said to him, he who showed mercy on him. Then Jesus said to him, go and do likewise. How many here uh, have either taken or plan to take either the SAT or the ACT? Or if you have, you taken it? Yeah. How, how many don't know what those two things are? Oh, if you, okay. Uh, they're the two uh, main college entrance exams, um, placement uh, tests. Kids take them typically in high school just before they're ready to go to, into college. In fact, most colleges require one or both of them, to find out, you know, how you're doing and where you belong when you get into college. And in fact, there is a whole industry on preparing people to take the ACT or the SAT. And you can imagine uh, books, to begin with, there are books you can buy to study. Uh, you can go to sessions and take uh, tests that are just like the SAT or the ACT. You can go to camps. Uh, you can even, for several thousand dollars, uh, rent a tutor to teach you how to take the SAT or the ACT. Isn't that good? And in fact, most of these places guarantee you that uh, you will get a better score if you go and use their products. Isn't that good? And they do a turnaway business, let me tell you. Well, um, 
We're going to talk about the GCT this morning, I said. GCT, God's commandment test. <laughs> How would you do on God's commandment test? You know, um, everybody is going to face God face to face. Are you ready for that test? This, we have a wonderful opportunity here in this little story because uh, this lawyer took advantage of the opportunity of having Jesus himself present. And he actually uh, kind of gets a preparation, if you will, for that test, kind of a, a pre-test. And we get to eavesdrop and see how it goes. And maybe we can learn something. This is a, this is a rare opportunity. You see... ACT and SAT is required to get into college. The GCT is required to get into heaven. And it's required. It's not optional. <laughs> Everybody's got to take it. In fact, this may surprise you, you're taking it right now. The GCT. So here we go. Imagine, and think about this. Here is a human being discussing with God his commandments. Isn't that incredible? He begins with the $64,000 question. The, uh, the um, lawyer comes up and says, uh, good teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? Wouldn't it be great to ask God that? You know, so many people really want to know. That's, if you think about it, that's life's biggest question. What does it take to get into heaven? Wouldn't it be great to ask God that? Well, here, somebody actually did it. Now, uh, before we go too far on this, I want you to understand who this guy is. When you, he's not a lawyer like we're used to. You know, you get into trouble with the law, you hire a lawyer to defend you before the court. This is not that kind of a lawyer. Here, he is a religious lawyer. That is to say, his, his specialty is the law of God and knowing it and interpreting it. You understand? That's why he's called a lawyer. He knows all about the word of God, or at least he thinks he does. And so when it says uh, he's testing the Lord, it says... Um, he uh, stood up and tested Jesus. It's not an evil thing. What he wants to do is kind of like you do in a classroom, have a nice discussion about this topic with Jesus. He can see by now, having heard Jesus teach, that Jesus seems to know a lot <laughs> about God, you know, people, life, eternal life, heaven, hell, sin. Uh, and so he's just, he really wants to get into a discussion with him. But... Uh, he, he, he's decided a good way to start with this Jesus would be to ask him, what's, what's the big question? How do you get eternal life? And we'll see how he does on it. You understand? That, that's, so he's testing him in that sense. He's not, out, he's not out so much to get Jesus. He's not a bad guy. He's really looking forward to a nice dialogue, a nice discussion with this Jesus about God and getting to heaven. So uh, he's, he's not uh, out to trap Jesus. He's out to really have a nice uh, discussion. Well, Jesus, this response of Jesus is wonderful. He's very gracious. 
he, he takes him up on this. You can tell by his response. You see what Jesus said? He says, what is written in the law? Remember the lawyer's specialty? The law? The law of God? And then he says, what's your reading of it? You, got, you understand? That's the way they would go into this kind of a dialogue. One would ask the other, uh, I don't know, what's your take on it? You see, that's what he's doing. Before I tell you what I, what I think, why don't you tell me what you think, you know? This is good. And so I can just see, you know, the lawyer's really rubbing his hands. Oh, yeah. I've been waiting for him to ask me that question. Because he's clearly done a lot of thinking about it. And so here is his response. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, and all your mind, and your neighbor as yourself. Do you know what? That's a great answer. You know, Jesus, when asked, what's the greatest commandment elsewhere in the Gospels? This is exactly what Jesus said. This guy, hey, he knows his stuff. And it's Deuteronomy 6.5 and a verse out of Exodus. That's where they come from. And if you think about it, if you were to summarize all the law of God, this is a perfect way. Beginning with God, I need to love him with all my heart, soul, mind, and strength. And then my relationship with people, I should love them as myself. And that's, you can summarize all the law of God. Jesus said that. Isn't that simple? You ever tried doing it? So, so far, you know, uh, this, this lawyer is probably really proud of himself. And um, not only that, verse 28, Jesus says, you've answered rightly, 100%. You think this guy's excited? His thinking and his discussions with his colleagues is born fruit. He knows the right answer. Isn't that great? And then Jesus adds this apparently innocent phrase. That's right. Just do that and you'll live. That's all you got to do. Just love God with all your heart, all your soul, all your mind, and all your strength, by the way, all the time. And love your neighbor as yourself all the time. When, when do the laws of God, when are they enforced? Just when I feel like it? All the time. You understand? We need to understand that. We lose that. We think about the laws of God as just good suggestions. You know? Or they're applicable when I think they should be. It's all the time. How often are you supposed to not murder? Just once in a while? You, you understand? You know? How often are you not supposed to go into a bank and pull out a gun and rob them? All the time. It's no different with the laws of God. This is a law, and you must keep it 24 hours a day, okay? So, uh, this is not, unfortunately, an ACT test, you see. That's why Jesus added that last phrase. God is not interested in me having the right answer up here. The GCT is a life test. 
You're, you're, you're taking it right now, you see. Doesn't that make sense? You know, just those that go to, know the right answer, go to heaven. <laughs> you know, they could be scoundrels, but they happen to know the right answer. No, it's how I live. That's the test. And so Jesus says, all you got to do is do that, not know it. We're not talking thinking here, philosophy. We're talking real life. Talk is cheap, as we say. And that makes sense. Look, God doesn't just go around handing out eternal life for nothing. It's an expensive item. And he doesn't just give it to anybody. So it makes sense that he expects, he has high standards to get it. Okay. Clearly, uh, the lawyer is hearing Jesus' word, but he's not getting it. He doesn't really grasp these words that he's saying. Think about it. I'm not going to ask you to raise your hand, but think about it. Do you think you have ever really loved God with all your heart, all your soul, all your mind, and all your strength? Your whole being, you do it all the time? All your heart, all your affections. We haven't even seen God, you know? Have you loved God with all your affections so that there's no distraction? All your mind, you weren't, you weren't distracted in thought, thinking about Him only. All your soul, that's your whole being. And finally, all your strength. It's not a wimpy, weak love. So strong, you know? An intense love. You do that all the time? <laughs> I'll be the first. Look, no, I'm guilty, okay? And the, the lawyer doesn't really realize what he's saying. It hasn't sunk down inside. I know the answer. That's enough. No. A law isn't a given to know about. It's to be kept. I'm speaking from experience uh, in this passage, we're going to look at both of these great commandments. I'm going to say the first and second commandments, first being loving uh, God and the second being loving your neighbor. We're not talking about the Ten Commandments when I say that. That's another. They're kind of summarized, really, in these two. Over a period of about three years, God hit me between the eyes with myself. And many of you know, I'm not going to go into detail about uh, how God brought me to himself. But it began in July 1969 when I got run over by a, truck, a semi. I was in a golf cart, and I tangled with a semi, 24-foot Manson van, fully loaded with freight, 20,000 pounds, and the semi won. And I was blacked out for I don't know how long, and when I finally came to on the pavement all messed up, things were pretty gory. The first thing, I'm telling you, that hit me was, if I had died... I would have gone to hell because I had never given God a second thought. I didn't care about God. If anybody ever mentioned God or religion or talked about Jesus, man, I would get out of it. I would change the subject. I'll be honest. I mean, I, would, I wouldn't say those, are, but I hated God. I didn't, want, I didn't want God to mess up my life. You know? I was cool without God. I didn't want him. So what I'm saying is, God convinced me at that moment 
you know what, Rick? You've been breaking that first commandment, although I didn't know it was a commandment. Never went to church. I'd never read a Bible. But deep down inside, I had this terrible sense that I should have been focusing my life on this God who made me and was sustaining me, and I hadn't even been giving him a second thought. So when he sent me to hell, man, he did the right thing. You ever had, you ever had that experience? Real conviction of God about what a sinner you are? Boy, I did. It was so strong that I knew that I was going to hell and that I deserved it, and I didn't argue about it. Well, the second command, love your neighbor as yourself. Do you, do you understand what that's really saying? Do you know how you love yourself? You spare no expense, right? You know? Make myself nice and comfortable. You know, if I want it, I get it. I want it when? Yeah, now, you know. Think about how you care for yourself. Now, do you care for uh, other people? I don't mean just family members, everybody, your neighbor. <laughs> Look, if we honestly went out and helped everyone and, and we had the capacity to do it and gave them whatever it took, our time, our money, our strength to help them when they were in need in some way, we'd have nothing left. Right? Nothing wrong with that. That's a great way to waste your life. But that's if you were really to obey that commandment exactly the way God intends it, that's where you'd end up. You know, you know who you'd be like? Jesus. That's right. When they crucified Jesus, you know what he owned? The clothing on his back. That's it. He had wasted his life, literally, loving others as himself. This lawyer doesn't really, like we don't, really understand what he's saying. Or he wouldn't be rattling it off so blithely the way he does. Well, um, it's interesting in verse 29, when Jesus ends with that, do this and you will live. He responds, and you may wonder why he does this. But he, wanting to justify himself, said to Jesus, uh, and who is my neighbor? Isn't that good? Now, why is he doing that? Well, you have to understand what lawyers, these kind of lawyers, were like. And I'm going to help you out a little bit because I'm going to quote from the writings that they would know about, or at least the oral tradition of what they would know about. You see, it was a lawyer's, this kind of a lawyer's business, like I said, to know the law of God. I mean inside and out. And so for centuries, they, there were guys like this. All they did was just, they discussed the law of God and all the finer points. And what does it exactly mean to keep the Sabbath? You know, what does it exactly mean to love your neighbor as yourself? And so on. Every law of God, they took it apart and studied every little thing and say, well, now how does it apply to this situation and that situation? And if you look at, we, you can look at it today. It's called the Mishnah. It's writings today you can look up. And if you look at it, you'll see they've taken the law of God and they talk about it and argue about it until it's totally lost its power. And in fact... It's full of ways out, loopholes now. 
Do you understand? What you do is you redefine terms, and I'll show you how they do it by reading a passage in a minute. But that's what he's about to do, you see. He's going to say, well, wait a minute now. It says, love your neighbor as yourself. What now? Who's my neighbor? Because to them, that immediately excludes Gentiles or heathen. It excludes Samaritans. It excludes idolaters. In fact, basically excludes anybody I don't like. It makes it, isn't that nice? Okay. By the way, before you get too carried away when I read this thing and you start laughing, let me tell you. What does it say here? It says he wants to justify himself. Do you know what? Every single person in this room, beginning with me, is a lawyer. Aren't we? You ever been in an argument with anybody? I'll tell you, we are so good at defending a hopeless position. Aren't we? Huh? Come on, be honest. You, you get an argument with someone. Now, you know what? If you really got honest with God, most of the time, you're wrong. God would tell you that. We don't want to hear that, do we? And so we are so good verbally at talking and redefining things and explaining things and justifying things so that when we're done, we walk away. Ha, I guess I showed her, you know, or him. I am so right, man. I am so good. Right? Huh? Come on, be honest. We're lawyers. And we're experts at it. And that's what he's about to do. Now, the problem with this is that when we do that with people, we usually end up saying something that hurts them. Don't we? Yeah. And we know it. We know it before we say it that it's going to hurt that person. But we say it anyway. And we walk away with that person basically like this a traveler lying there half dead, bruised, and cut by our words. But we don't care because we won the argument. Right? Yeah. Okay, I said, uh, this will give you an idea of where this guy's coming from. Turn to Exodus chapter 23. We're going to look at one command that there are about four pages of discussion on in the Mishnah. Exodus 23, verse 5. If you see the donkey of one who hates you lying under its burden and you would refrain from helping it, you shall surely help him with it. Did you understand that? Let me read it again so that there's no confusion. This is a command from God to the Israelites. If you see the donkey of one who hates you lying under its burden, and you would refrain from helping it, because I would, because the guy hates me, God says, I'm sorry, you shall surely help him with it. 
Now, is that clear or what? Do you understand that? By the way, people uh, often say, you know, well, man, that's, that's not in the Old Testament about, uh, you know, being kind to other people and loving those that hate you, you know. Well, here's an example right here. God says it. You got somebody that hates you. He's in trouble. I command you to help that guy. Do you know that was in here? Now, not long after this, you begin to have a lot of Jews who ran into the situation where they see a donkey of somebody that hates them. And he's struggling under his burden. And the Jew goes, oh no. I'm supposed to help that guy. I don't want to do that. I want to refrain from helping him. And so this is where the uh, learned guys come into play. Later, they were called rabbis. But early on, they were just interpreters of the law, like this lawyer. Okay? They, they go back to this command, and they start examining it and saying, now, what exactly is God saying there? Let me give you some quotes. I'm not going to read the whole thing. For example... The donkey is struggling under his burden. Well, it says he's, let's be honest now, it says he's lie, lying under his burden. What does that mean? Does that mean that he fell to the ground because the burden was so heavy? And if so, helping, that must mean helping unload the donkey, right? Doesn't that make sense? He's got too much on him. But wait a minute. What about reloading him? This donkey's supposed to have something on him because the guy wants to get this stuff carried somewhere, okay? So you can go ahead and take some off, but to be honest, if you, it says help him. It sounds like you're helping the guy. That means you help him in whatever you adjust the load so the donkey can now carry whatever he needs to carry. So here we go. Here's the discussion. There is a biblical precept to unload, but not to load. What is meant by, but not to load? Shall we say not to load at all? Wherein does unloading differ? Because it is written, thou shalt surely help him. Yet in respect to loading too, it is said, thou shalt surely help him to lift them up again. But it means this. It is a biblical obligation to unload without remuneration. That is money being paid for it. But not to load without payment. Save only for remuneration. Rabbi Simeon said to load too without payment. You got that? So... You can go ahead and unload. You don't have to charge the guy. But if he asks you to help him to put some of the stuff back on, he's got to pay you. You understand? That's their take on it. But Rabbi Simeon is a dissenter. He says, no, you've got to do both. And they're not going to settle it. That's the, way, that's the way they're going to leave it. We have thus learned here what our rabbis taught. Unloading must be done without pay. Loading for pay. Rabbi Simeon said both without payment. What is the reason of the rabbis? For should you think it is as Rabbi Simeon, let Scripture state loading and unloading becomes unnecessary. For I would reason if one is bound to load, though no suffering of dumb animals nor financial loss is involved, how much more so unloading, seeing that both suffering of dumb animals and financial loss are involved. Then for what purpose is it written? To teach you that unloading must be performed without payment, but loading only for payment. And what is Rabbi Simeon's reason? Because the verses are not explicit. You got that? Okay? Now, some of that may sound like double talk to you, but listen, this is preserved right now. I, this is right off the internet right now. 
I downloaded a, a Mishnah on my iPad and read through it. I'm not going to read the whole thing. I'll just give you, I'll just summarize. You're getting the drift, aren't you? You understand what it's like? The whole thing is like this. They get into the issue of, now let's see, he's lying under his burden. <clears throat> Does that just mean that he's habitually lying down because he's a lazy animal? If it is, then I don't need to help. Because you don't want to assist laziness. But if he really is lying down because the burden was too heavy, well then I should help. So the question is, can he stand with that burden on him? And if he can, forget it. Uh, interestingly enough, by the way, uh, they take on the issue of an enemy, and they go down the list. Now, who does that include and who does it not include? One rabbi actually took that phrase, and if you, if you would refrain, that is, if you would like to not help, he, he twists that around and says, what that says is, you can refrain. Don't tell me, don't ask me how you get that. But uh, they, they also go into uh, the discussion of uh, heathen, that's us Gentiles, uh, and um, other exclusions from who I need to help. And then finally, again, they revisit the uh, for-profit or not-for-profit thing. Okay, I'm not going to read anymore. I just gave you a highlight. But the point is, that's where this lawyer is coming from. This is the kind of stuff he lives with. Okay? You, you understand? And so when he asks this question, who is my neighbor? He's lying in wait. He's, he's got an answer for that. You see. I'm going to explain to Jesus that this excludes a lot of people. I only have a few people that I would really call my neighbor. Most people aren't. Okay, you got that? So that's where he's coming from. When God gave the command, who did he mean? Thank you. It's real simple. Everybody. That's right. Isn't that, isn't that a lot simpler? I mean, at least conceptually. Doing it is another thing. Okay, this is wonderful. The Lord Jesus is so gracious with this guy. You know, he... he he could have done like I probably would have done. You know, what do you mean who's your neighbor, you idiot? It's everybody. <laughs> Jesus doesn't do that. Instead, he tells them a story. Wonderful story to teach him. Um, Howard is unwittingly going to be my assistant here. Because uh, he's going to be the, um, the, the traveler who's wounded. You can just sit there. You don't have to do anything, okay? You might act hurt once in a while or something. Okay. There you go. I like that. Okay. Um, yeah, okay. By the way, I was going to say, it's no wonder now, if you, under, if you heard the stuff I just read, and the, and the Mishnah is full of this stuff. It's all it is. Double talk about the Word of God, diluting it, negating it, changing it. It's no wonder Jesus said, These people draw near to me with their mouth and honor me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. And in vain they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. That's right. And he could have pulled that on this guy, but he doesn't. He tells him a story. 
Before I get into the story, you're going to have to hang on. Lay there in your pain there, uh, Howard. Um, it's, it's interesting that God hit me between the eyes with these two commandments. The first one was the first commandment, as I told you, when, my had, when I had my accident. And um, it doesn't take long before it wears off if you don't do anything about it. Do you know that? If God speaks to you, and you know it's God speaking, but if you put it off, if you don't do anything about it, somehow it, it fades out, you lose it. You know? God's not going to play games, you know. He, 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 people think that uh, they're doing God a favor, you know, by coming to Christ. No, you're not. And uh, if you give him the cold shoulder, he'll take that and he'll quietly go away. And you won't hear him anymore. And that's what began to happen to me. So it took uh, another incident in my life. I got married. That wasn't the incident. I got married in September of 71. Even my wife doesn't know that. I asked her, when's our anniversary? I don't know, somewhere in 71. It was September 18th, 1971. Um, and within a few months, we were at each other's throats. We'd, we'd uh, known each other for five years, been dating a lot and stuff. So all the surprises were gone, you know. And um, praise God, it's like, I, I, I can't explain it, but it's like God held this mirror up to me, and I saw myself. I had never seen myself. See, the first, first commandment was, was my relationship with God. I did not love God with my heart, soul, mind, and strength. I didn't love him at all. In fact, I detested him. That was clear. But he had to get me with a horizontal relationship with people. Nothing like marriage to help you in that department, let me tell you. Okay. <laughs> you want to see how you're a sinner? Get married. That's the, that's the miracle of Christian marriage, that God actually brings two sinners together and they live happily in Christ. Anyway, um, it was what I saw, and I'd never seen it before. One day we got in an argument, and uh, all of a sudden, for the first time, it was the kind of thing I talked about earlier, about justifying yourself. As I was talking, I was saying, man, Rick, you've got a problem. You're wrong, and you're trying to make it sound right, and you're saying things that aren't nice. This is terrible. It hit me so hard, I'll tell you. I did not like what I saw, and all of a sudden, I used to think I was such a cool guy. I said, man, you're not such a nice guy, Bellis, and it scared the daylights out of me, and that was... Uh, about springtime, early 72. Well, I'll tell you, after, and then I remembered what happened to my accident. And I saw plainly, I was breaking God's laws all the time. I wasn't fit for heaven, I was fit for hell. Praise God, he brought me to Christ in East, around Easter of 1972, not long after that. And it was, it was, my, it was my tongue. It's interesting that uh, I, I would think out of all the sins that we, we do, it seems to be the, the speech that God brings out in the Scripture more than anything else. He has a whole section devoted to it in James. You know, he says our tongue is uh, an ungovernable muscle. We have all these muscles, you know, I used to have muscles here, you know. 
down here, you know, muscle here, your heart's a muscle. This is a little muscle, he says. But it's amazing the strength that it has, isn't it? Man, it can do damage, huh? Just that little tiny muscle. He said, it's amazing. We have this little thing called a rudder on the back of a ship. You turn it this way, you turn it that way. You turn this thing that, lays, that weighs thousands of tons in the ocean with this little tiny rudder. He says the tongue's like that. It's a little tiny thing, but man, it has power. He said it's like a, a, a spark that starts a fire that sets the whole forest on blaze. And he says, you know what gets it started, where it gets its uh, fire from? Hell. He said, your tongue set on fire by hell. I didn't say that. James said that. No wonder. When God revealed himself to Isaiah, and he got this vision of God in Isaiah chapter 6, and he saw God in his holiness, he suddenly realized what a sinner he was. You know what hit Isaiah? What sin? Above everything else? Isaiah said, woe is me, I am undone. Because I'm a man of unclean lips. My speech. Is that interesting? Maybe Isaiah had a fight with his wife that morning. Maybe he just was conscious of something he'd said that day. Maybe he just realized in general that uh, he didn't speak the way he should. Whatever it was, he said, I'm undone. He says, I've had it. <laughs> I'm condemned with no help. And then, of course, later, Peter with Jesus in the boat. Peter sinned with his tongue in basically rebuking the Lord. He said, nevertheless, Lord, at your will, I'll let down the net. He was uh, letting Jesus know that he didn't approve of it so that when they didn't catch any fish, you know, it was Jesus' fault. It's your word. I'm doing this because you told me to. And then when the boat began to sink from all the fish he caught, what did he do? He fell down at Jesus' feet and he said, depart from me, Lord, I'm a sinful man. His speech again. How's your speech? Okay, before we get into uh, Howard's role as the uh, wayfaring traveler here, it, I don't know if you noticed, uh, the lawyer didn't even talk about the first commandment after he'd mentioned it. He said, who is my neighbor? He didn't go back to the first commandment because he knows he doesn't do it. But he focuses on the second because he thinks there's some wiggle room in there. If we can re redefine terms, you know, say who the neighbor is, maybe there's an escape clause and I can justify myself. You see, that's what he's doing. And think about it. When Jesus gives him an answer, he's giving him a free tutoring lesson on the GCT. Isn't that great? A free one-on-one. -on -one. Okay. So, verse 30. Uh, Howard's traveling to Jericho. It says going down. Jerusalem's up at the higher uh, elevation. Jericho's down toward the Jordan, which is very low elevation. At this point, it's actually below sea level. Terrible area. It was known for its thieves and robbers. It's, it was in the wilderness. We think of wilderness as bushes and trees. There are the wilderness as rocks and, and uh, desert and lizards. Terrible, desolate place. And people are always, travelers were getting uh, beaten up and robbed all the time. So very realistic picture Jesus is painting here. It's, it's really interesting reading the, the words and studying them. Jesus paints this guy in such a, a pathetic situation. It says that they left him half dead. And the word for having uh, departed and left him there is they really didn't care what state he was in. You know? 
They, they beat him up, and, you know, they could have gone all the way and killed him, but they didn't bother. If they'd killed him, fine. If he was still alive, uh, whatever. Total indifference. The point is he's half dead. It's the only place this word occurs in the New Testament. It's one word, half dead. And they don't care. Now, Howard's laying there, and uh, first comes the priest, and he's a religious guy. So if this is great. Here comes someone who knows the law of God. He should love God, and he should have pity on this guy. He's a fellow Jew. This guy's a Jew. I'm a priest, and here I come. And I'm traveling on my way. Uh, I don't know which way I'm going, Jericho or Jerusalem, but we'll say it's Jericho. And I'm going, and I see this guy. Yeah, I mean, you know, he's probably conscious. You can imagine his hopes. Kind of get up, you know. Help at last. And the guy looks, you know, and kind of, hmm. Man, I don't want to get involved, you know. Those guys might still be around somewhere. I think I'll just keep right on going, you know. Imagine how the guy felt. You know, yeah, the classic scene is these guys out in the middle of an ocean, you know, with a, with a life vest on, and the plane finally comes, and they holler and yell, and then the plane just keeps right on going, you know. That's the picture. Oh, man, his hopes are dashed. As I go down the road, and he, he uses his last words, you know, to gas, please come back, you know. I'm gone. I'm out of here. Okay, the next one is a Levite. He's a little better. He's a religious guy too, by the way. And he's coming along, and he sees this something laying in the road. He actually goes over. Imagine how the guy feels, right? Here I come. Yeah. I'm a rubbernecker. You know, the guys on the freeway that see accidents and then cause other ones, right? Check them out. Man, man, wow. What do they do to you? No, I don't think I, don't think I want to get involved in this. I got things I got to do. I'm sorry. No, I, no, I'm too busy. And he goes right on by. How do you think he feels now? Two, two potential uh, helpers. No. Don't want to get involved. Number three. It's interesting. I've said this before. You don't have to be, be a Greek expert to understand this. Uh, in our language, when we want to stress something, we say it louder in a sentence. If you want to stress a word, um, you say it louder than the other words. The word that Jesus is stressing in this last phrase is Samaritan. Now, if we were to say it in English, we, have to, we, we stress it by saying but then a certain Samaritan. Why did Jesus do that? Because the Jews hated the Samaritans. And the Samaritans gave it right back. It's great. You don't even need to go to um, a Bible history book to learn this. God tells us in John chapter 4, when the Samaritan woman asked Jesus, you know, why are you talking to me, a Jew speaking to a Samaritan woman? And then he says, because the, Samaritan, the Jews had no dealings with the Samaritans. They hated each other. Okay? By the way, put yourself in the lawyer's shoes at this point. His question was, who's my neighbor? Right? Is Jesus answering that? He's going, okay, uh, let's see who my neighbor is. And he talks about a, a priest. And he talks about a Levite. But how does this answer my question? Because they're, they're going right on by. 
Nobody's doing anything for anyone. I don't understand this. And just when he's trying to figure it out, in the Greek, the first word in the sentence, and I've and I got to finish what I was telling you about the Greek. Greek is a wonderful language. I don't think there's any other one like it. They, I don't know if they still do it, but in, in the Greek for the New Testament, if they wanted to stress something, they just took the word and put it at the front of the sentence, the first word. Which is okay, except when you try to translate it into English. So, uh, basically, in this case, if you read the Greek, literally, it would be a Samaritan, but a certain, as he journeyed, came where he was. Do you understand? It doesn't make any sense in English, but that's okay. It made perfect sense in the Greek. And you don't have to shout it out. You don't have to emphasize it. It's stressed by putting that word in. If you look at the Greek, there it is. Samaritan, right there. First word. Jesus is driving this point home. This is a guy that you hate, lawyer, and who normally would hate you. So here he comes, you know, this unclean Samaritan, and he looks over, and he sees this guy. And before he even makes a move, what does it say? It says he had compassion on him. He hasn't even done anything yet. There's the key. And this, this is what Jesus is teaching this guy, you see. It was inside. You can't produce that. You can't fake that. You can't make it happen. When you see this guy, you're either going to have compassion right now because it's there. <laughs> you can try for months. You're not going to work it up, you see. That's what Jesus teaches. It's from the heart that God is looking. And so because he has compassion, he acts and he goes over and he does all kind of stuff. He, uh, you may wonder what Italian salad dressing is doing in this passage, by the way. Well, if you think about it, it, it was the perfect uh, ointment in those days. The uh, wine has what in it? Alcohol. That's right. And so he took out the wine and he cleansed all of his, you know, he's bleeding. He's openly bleeding, probably from uh, either knife wounds or just being beaten up. And he poured in wine to disinfect it. But then the oil, you see, is soothing. And so he'd, he'd, he'd kind of put the oil on and make him feel better. And I could just see him comforting him, you know, as he's helping him, trying to encourage him. You know, you're going to be all right. You know, we'll get you to an end. Okay? Bandaged him up. He got messy. I'll tell you, this Samaritan, when he got done, he was a mess. You know? He doesn't care what his wife's going to say when she throws that stuff in the, in the uh, washer. He's just moved with compassion, and he's got to help this guy, you see, from the heart. Bandages him up. It says he, he got him onto his own animal. I, I tell you, Howard can't do much right now. I don't know if I could get you up on my own animal now, brother, unless you help me. But he did it. Got him on his own animal, walked beside him, probably holding him on the donkey as they went, you know, comforting him the whole way. Okay, you're done. Gets him up to the inn. Oh, man, can you imagine how grateful this guy is? Gets him into a bed, you know, gets him some food. And then it says, set him on his own animal, brought him to an inn, and took care of him. And then the next thing is on the next day. It sounds like he stayed up all night with the guy. You know, right there, just making sure he's okay. You want a drink of water? 
You know, just lay there and rest. You're going to be all right. Get some sleep, you know. Change the bandages because they'd need changing. You know, maybe a little more oil, a little more wine. Maybe you'd probably have to feed them, right? You know, hold the spoon for them. Next day, when he departed, he took out two denarii. Denarius is a laborer's day's wage, about 100 bucks today. So, or, or maybe 150. So he, he gave the innkeeper two to three hundred dollars. That'll last for a while, huh? You know, to take care of this guy. And that's what he says. He says, take care of him now. He charges the innkeeper. But that's not the end of it. He says, and whatever more you spend, when I come again, I will repay you. He's going he's gonna to follow up. He's, he's basically made this guy his responsibility. You know what he's done? He's loved him as himself. Because that's exactly what he would want someone to do for him if he were in the same place. Second commandment. But it began with his heart. That's the key. He didn't just do all this outward stuff because, okay, now what am I supposed to do? Oh, that's right, I probably should bandage him. You know, ugh. It all came from his heart. It's really interesting, again, in the original. <clears throat> when he says, when I come again, I will repay you. There's an emphasis there. He's saying, when I come, come again, I, he stressed, I will repay you. In other words, don't charge this guy a cent. Don't even think about it. Whatever uh, charges are incurred, I'll pay it all. Whatever it takes. Man, how'd you like to be treated like that, huh? You just go, ah, you know. So here's the key, you see, to the commandments of God. God's not looking for outward stuff. He's not looking for you to redefine terms. He just wants to see it in the heart. The problem is it's not there. That's the problem. And that's what he's trying to teach this guy. Do you know who alone has a heart like this? 24 hours a day? It's Jesus. We don't even come close. We're out for number one. Now, once in a while, you know, we'll be kind to family members. But, uh, man, 24 hours a day, my enemies, everybody, no way. Loving them like myself. So that's what he's trying to show this guy. I love this. You know, <clears throat> I have a medical plan. I think most of the guys here are, are ladies that have a job. You have some kind of medical plan. And you have like uh, some kind of deductible, and then if you have a major thing, they pay 80%. This guy paid 100%. No deductible. Great medical plan. <clears throat> Look, Jesus is telling this because he's speaking from his own heart. This is the way Jesus is. Jesus alone. And he knows what he's talking about. We're going to get to that just after we finish off the passage. But before we get there, we want to end this uh, little GCT prep with a quiz. Jesus turns to him after telling him the story in verse 36. And he asks him, the obvious, which hand has the marble in it? He says, so which of these three do you think was neighbor to him who fell among the thieves? His response, by the way, is very interesting. He should have said what? 
That's exactly correct. He should have said them the way Jesus... The Samaritan, he can't even bring himself to utter that word. So it shows where his heart is. He hasn't learned the lesson yet. He just says, he who showed mercy on him. It reminds me of um, Simon the Pharisee. Remember when the woman poured ointment and, uh, or pardon me, anointed Jesus' feet with her tears and, and uh, rubbed his feet with her hair. And Jesus tries to explain to Simon the Pharisee in whose house this occurred, uh, the love this woman has. And he talks about the two debtors. Remember, the one debtor owes 100 bucks and the other owes a million. And the guy that owes 100 says, please, I can't play. I can't pay you. I don't have the money. And the guy that loaned him said, don't worry about it. We'll just forget it. And the guy that owes a million bucks comes up and says, I can't pay. And the guy that loaned him the money, same guy, says, don't worry about it. A million bucks, that's all right. It's square. We're done. And Jesus says, so which of the two debtors would love the guy more? You know what Simon said? I love it. Um, I suppose, let me think about it. Uh, I suppose the one that owed him the most. Like, you know, I'm not sure, but I'll venture a wild guess. Well, that's what you got here. You know, he doesn't really want to cooperate, but it's kind of hard not to. And so he does the minimum by saying, well, the guy that had mercy on him. And Jesus ends it the way he should. And here it is again. Remember he said earlier, do this and you will live? Here he says, okay, go and do likewise. Now, I think you all understand. Look, Jesus is not teaching that you're saved by being a good person. We're not a good person. Jesus is trying to bring conviction of sin in this lawyer's heart by showing him that he's playing a head trip, a head game with God. And his life is a shambles. And after hearing this, it would have been very appropriate if the lawyer had just fallen down on his knees and said, Lord, that's not me. I don't have that kind of a heart. Help me. That's what he should have done. And if this were a fairy tale, that's the way it would have ended. You know, and then it would have said something like, and they all lived happily ever after. But this is real life. These are real people. Jesus said, uh, broad is the way that leads to destruction, and many there be that go that way. Most people go that way. Narrow is the way that leads to eternal life, and there are very few that find it, he said. And so this guy is in that big group that's heading down that broad road. He's proud. He doesn't want to admit that he can't keep the law of God. And so he's got to go back into life and keep taking the test. And Lord willing, he'll come to the point where he realizes he's failed. It's wonderful that Jesus tells this story because it it serves so many purposes, not only to teach him and to teach us what it means to love your neighbor as yourself, but it's also a beautiful picture of the Lord Jesus himself. I can tell you right now, I don't care who you are, you've already been involved in this story. You were the traveler, and Jesus was the good Samaritan. You see. Here's here's the deal. You're in danger. You're, You're half dead. Right now. Because of your sin. The sin we've been talking about. And Jesus was moved with compassion before you were even born, by the way. 
Jesus saw you suffering in hell for the things you've done and crying out like the rich man, Lord, I'm in torment in these flames. And it broke his heart. Now, he could have waited until you'd gone to the judgment of God and had been cast into hell and said, oh no, now what can I do? If he'd done that, it would have been too late. He couldn't wait. And so do you know what he did? Like this good Samaritan, he came down to where you are from heaven, down to this place, and he got, his, he got messy like the Samaritan. But it wasn't bloody wounds that he took care of for you because that's not what you needed. It was sin, a sin problem. I want you to listen to what I'm about to say. Jesus got messy. He took your sins upon himself. He said, I see the problem. It's their sin. We've got to get rid of that. And so instead of getting his hands uh, messy with your blood, he got messy with your sins. What does it say in 1 Peter? He himself bore our sins in his own body on the cross. And so far, is that loving your neighbor as yourself? Is that loving your enemy? This is when we were enemies. It says that again in the Bible. We're his enemies. We didn't love him. And praise God, he answered for those sins. So that now there really is a way to get eternal life. There wasn't without Jesus. Do you understand that? You can't keep the law of God. Nobody can. That's why God gave us the law. To show us what sinners we are and what great need we have. To drive us to Jesus. The problem is, most people won't admit that. They keep holding out, you know, like the lawyer. Let me redefine terms. Let me talk about it. I'm not that bad. God will weigh the good with the bad. Let me, let me be honest with you. I can tell you right now what your score will be on the GCT if you don't have Jesus. I'm going to surprise you by telling you it's not even zero. It's going to be less than zero. Guaranteed. Let me tell you why. Uh, between the two, the ACT and the SAT, the ACT, I believe it is, um, if you answer a question and you're wrong, you lose points. Do you know that? I hated that. I had to take that test. ACT test is different from the SAT. When they ask you questions on this thing, you know, you'd like to be able to guess. You could do that on the SAT. And sometimes you'll luck out. You know, so kids do that. On the ACT, you better not do that. You got five choices there. And if you guess wrong, you lose points. So it's possible to actually get a, a negative score on the ACT. Well, that's the, the way it is with God's test. Number one, you're required to take it. And number two, you're required to answer all the questions. You have to keep every commandment. These aren't recommendations, they're laws. Well, God has already told us how well we're doing on it. He says, our righteousnesses, our law-keeping, our being good people, you know what he says that it amounts to? In Isaiah, you guys know, all their righteousnesses are as what? Filthy rags. In other words, wrong. So I've answered wrong every question with my life. 
okay? Instead of a perfect score of 700, I had a score of minus 700. And so does everybody here. And that's the way it would end. Everybody fails the GCT if it weren't for Jesus. Because listen, Jesus, by having pity on you in advance, taking all your sins upon him and answering for them, he's, by the way, that's why he has the, uh, uh, the Samaritans say, whatever it costs, I will repay. That's what Jesus said on the cross. Whatever it costs to get that person out of hell and into heaven, just tell me what it is and I'll pay it. And he paid it all. All of it. So listen, without Jesus, your score is minus 700. But now, if you have Jesus Christ as your Lord and your Savior, you get a perfect score. Perfect. Not 698, not 699, 700. It has nothing to do with what a good person you are. It has to do with what a great God Jesus is and the fact that he paid it all. You want some good news this morning? I can tell you, right, you don't have to, you don't have to pay a penny. This is free. If you want a perfect score on the GCT, and by the way, you're taking it right now. You, you can't opt out of this, all right? There's no alternate test. And uh, the scene in Revelation 20 where they open the books, and you have one right now, Inside is the test results. It's already determined ahead of time. You're not going to get before God like this guy did and start asking questions. You know, well, who was my neighbor? You know, it's not, if you read Revelation 20, there's no dialogue from those being judged. They don't say a word. They open the books and there's two choices. If you're not in the book of life, which is the people who have a 700, a perfect score, because of Jesus, and they go to heaven, it says they are cast in the lake of fire. It's very simple. So how you doing on the test? And you don't have to answer. I can already tell you. Mine, you're minus 700. You failed. And it's just a matter of when you die, God's going to uh, finally do what needs to be done, judge you for it, give you your score. So if you don't know Jesus Christ, I don't know what you'd be waiting for. Man, a perfect score on the GCT, imagine. All because of what he's done. And you don't have to uh, have a priest or some kind of um, person with a degree. He's here right now. Right now, you could do business with Jesus and say, Lord Jesus, I'm a sinner. I've broken the first, second, all the way down to the thousandth commandment. I'm hopeless. I'm like that half-dead Jew laying in the ditch. I got no hope for heaven. My score is negative. But you tell me you paid it all, and I can have a perfect score right now if I trust you as my Lord and Savior. Please, give me that. Give me eternal life. He'll do it. And when he does that, it's forever. It doesn't change. You can't touch it. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, what a wonderful Savior you are. When we think of who we are, who we've been, and who you are, 
You should have been like the Levite and the priest. You should have just passed right on by. We have straight-armed you. We have taken your name in vain. We neglect you. We resent you. Lord, we've done everything possible to push you away. Thank you, Lord, that you love us anyway. We don't understand it. But we thank you that you didn't uh, just come near. You came all the way down to the cross. And there on the cross, you bore our sins. You paid it all until there was nothing left to pay. And now all that's left for us is to receive eternal life from your nail-pierced hands. Lord, I can't think of a greater deal than that. And I do pray if there's anyone here who has not trusted you as their Lord and Savior, they would stop waiting and make this the day. For I ask it in your precious name. Amen.